We've gone from, uh, you know, startup on the credit cards that will exceed a billion in top line revenue in three years, uh, something that people just haven't ever done with no debt. And, uh, you know, we look at the first benchmark of how can we make an impact? How can we make an impact for innovation in the state of Colorado? One of the things that was really eye-opening and incredible to me was watching uh, nurses that mobilized uh, on these uh, pandemic responses. This is the Proco 360 podcast. I'm Dave Tabor, hosting Proco 360 because I love Colorado and I love getting to know Colorado's entrepreneurs. Today's episode features Dan Dietrich, CEO of Jogan Health. I was encouraged to meet Dan by our mutual friend, David Pritchard of Denver Angels, because of Jogan Health's amazing growth. Dan Dietrich formed Jogan Health at the start of the COVID pandemic to provide the healthcare industry with emergency staffing and core services, also vaccines and testing of COVID. So COVID was a crazy time and we all heard stories about the staffing shortages and burnout. Jogan was in the middle of all that. So I want to talk about how Jogan solved staffing problems and, and that whole frantic mix during the peak of COVID. I also want to talk about what the future looks like at Jogan Health and other Jogan companies. So Dan, glad you could join me on Poco 360. Thanks so much. Look forward to sharing some of our story and talking about what we're doing in the great state of Colorado. Yeah. And you know, we will talk a little bit about Jogan and Colorado, the entrepreneurial areas and all that, and and some of the things that you're doing to help stimulate the entrepreneurial uh, environment. First, let's talk about, give us quick, I mean, I gave a quick overview of Jogan, but you can do better. You did a really good job, though. I like that. So uh, really do some things up in a short way. Jogan Health was formulated uh, to focus on a few different services. So we have uh, the core staffing area, which would be our regular nurse staffing. We have a newly formed locum tenens group, which is focused on the physician side of things. Uh, we have Allied Health, which is uh, your technicians and uh, some of those types of positions. And then we have a rapid response group that's focused on being basically the 911 for the government or the states when uh, things go bad. Yeah, I saw that too. And I, if we have time, I want to talk about that a bit. I mean, first, talk about the idea of starting Jogan, like basically in the midst of a pandemic or right as the pandemic was was erupting, right? Yeah, well, a lot of this came back to me from my background in logistics. And I did a lot of work in the traffic signal world. When you drive around and you see the cameras up by the red, yellow, greens at yeah. the intersection, everyone thinks it's red light running or Big Brother, but it's not. It's really just a uh, virtual loop or a replacement for those saw cut loops that you see in the brand new street. And you're thinking, oh, man, in Colorado here, we're going to have uh, water going there and it's going to freeze and bust the street up this brand new nice road and we're going to have potholes. But the the whole idea there was, uh, you know, optimizing green lights at intersections using thermal imaging cameras. So I created uh, that technology that's sort of used around the world. And you think about people, you think about people movement and in traffic, uh, logistics comes into play with that. And uh, I saw the rollout of the testing for COVID start to really be hindered uh, by logistics and available resources. And I thought, man, you know, as the, the testing and this vaccine stuff comes out, there's going to be a real problem uh, there for that. And that's what really spawned the idea to put together a turnkey logistics services uh, to really support the health departments out there that maybe weren't so equipped. Yeah, but, I mean, you must have done it in like a month. Yeah, it was something that was it was super quick, and uh, that, and uh, you know, I move fast. I focus on uh, hyper growth, and I'm just uh, 
energetic enough to make sure that the time is put in to make it happen. Yeah, but what was, I mean, you've, you've gone from whatever the logistics was around vaccine te- or, or illness testing, essentially, to a whole um, staffing service, right? So how long did it take you from saying, wow, this is broken and I can fix it to actually launching a company? Yeah, so I think what happened uh, that was most stark was uh, really around the shortages of nurses for facilities. So if we remember back to COVID Delta round and the challenges that existed there where the hospitals were sort of going down in flames and staff was uh, burning out from the subsequent rounds of illnesses and staff was sick themselves, um, it started to show the fracture points in the staff capability at the facilities and that somebody needed to do something, one, to provide emergent staff, but two, is really look at taking care of the caregivers that take care of the people in the community. And when I looked at the staffing industry, I thought, uh, you know, this sort of looks like a people mill to a certain degree, and it's pretty impersonal. It's an employee number, and you know, a lot of us have worked for big companies like that, myself included, and I thought, you know what, we have to take care of these people and uh, provide benefits and provide uh, communication and care, knowing that a lot of these people maybe uh, that are going out to these facilities, and some of them are really rural, maybe never on anyone's yeah. bucket list itself. Um, how can we create an environment where we have good communication and good culture to support them? Yeah, but what you're talking about, I mean, at, this, at the time you're, you were talking about sort of entering this space, all of the employees were just that. They were employees, right? So what were you doing? How do you shoehorn yourself in and say we're going to, you know, these are tens of thousands of employees across the state, really, even the country, and then it becomes millions. How do you shoehorn yourself into saying we're going to fix this culture and make people feel better while they're dealing with all this? Yeah, so the first piece was really being able to fulfill the shortage in a quick time period. And uh, we did that by um, paying Industry leading rates, yeah, yeah. Uh, as as there was a crazy time well, there. Well, some would say I'm interrupting you because some would say, "Yeah, you paid people more, but you basically just shifted them around based on paying them more." Right? You're smiling. I mean, so that that whole mechanism of moving bodies to follow cash did that actually increase the number of people available to serve patients? So it didn't, it didn't. So I would say, yes, there was a lot of people sort of bidding. And in the industry, they have this thing called a family emergency. And uh, people would have a family emergency and end up leaving. Well, a lot of times the family emergency was probably they had a contract that was going to pay them $5 more somewhere else. Uh, But I think uh that a lot of people, uh, you know, especially if you look at the nurses across the country, a lot of times the nurses were a second wage earner for the family. Um, one of the things that was really eye-opening and incredible to me was watching uh, nurses that mobilized uh, the, on these uh, pandemic responses that were actually supporting multiple families at home. So, um, you know, they had somebody— Talk more about that. What do you mean? Yeah, so they would have somebody, uh, maybe they're in a lower-income area, and um, but they had, uh, you know, one of the family members that was skilled and in, in got their RN or their LPN certification— and um, they they stepped in together as families to support raising the kids while the mom or the dad would go off on one of these travel gigs. And because it was a financial equation that really tipped it over uh, to where they said, hey, we're going to make the sacrifice. We're going to go out and help people, but we're also going to make enough money to support our families. Um, that was really one of the most astounding things that oh. I saw come out and in place. So it did activate additional people. So uh, there were people who weren't working because the wages weren't high enough who then became activated into the workforce because of what you were paying them. 
Yeah, so you know, it was it was us, but it was also the industry at the time well, of sure. what we would call the surge. That people came off of retirement, um, and that they were compelled. So maybe they had excessive debt at home. Um, they had an ill family member or something where the money really uh, was helpful. Uh, so you definitely saw mobilization occur that maybe wouldn't have occurred uh, at a lower rate. That's that's pretty interesting. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have thought about that. So at some point, though. It became. I'm just pushing around this this notion of visiting nurses and sure. all that because it's see, I, like I heard stories where visiting nurses would quit their current job, take a visiting nurse job, and keep doing their same job, but at two times, even three times the money. Yeah, so that that happened, and you know, uh, we in our partner states that we were working with, we by ourselves added clauses in there that said that the staff needed to come from outside the state because that's exactly what happened at the very front side of this. You would have somebody who would walk out the front door, put their magnetic name tag on the file cabinet, go sign a contract with the travel staffing agency and walk back through the door, pull their name tag back off the file cabinet and go back to work, add a 2X, 3X multiplier. And that was uh, not anything that was additive to support the cause of what was happening. So uh, proactively, as we were working with these different agencies, we made the commitment to them that we were going to bring resources from outside of the area to support them. That's, although, did those resources from outside the area, it, I, I hear what you said earlier about being additive, that people felt financially compelled now to change the way they look at work. Um, you know, w- were a lot of those employees coming from that? Or, or, were you, or were you just pulling some, you know, from wherever into, into a new state? Yeah, so there was a little bit of a land grab on available that's what it's inventory. Said, that's, I guess absolutely. that's what I'm asking. Yeah, yeah that yeah. absolutely was the case. And, you know, depending on the proactive uh, nature or culture of the different governmental agencies or yeah. public health agencies yeah. uh, or even their own financial resources, you know, making sure that they had adequate healthcare workers no matter what and from mm-hmm. wherever, as long as they had the licensure, they, they were wanting to uh, maintain that quality of care for the people yeah. in their state. So they, it got a little bit aggressive. That was well. I appreciate your candor around that because that was like I just didn't see a way around that. Uh, yeah. Now, the the question of burnout is is you mentioned some things about culture and treating people well, taking care of the people who take care of the people. You know, at some point though, those those caregivers were going right back into these crazy stress filled environments. How could you possibly could you could they have a different experience being a jogan? healthcare provider than they could working for whoever they were working with before? Yeah, so you, you look at that uh, whole people mill assimilation there, and uh, you know we look at our people and being able to do silly things like providing benefits, which to us is really important. Uh, but, you know, benefits, uh, transportation, communication, connectivity with our field operations team, uh, a lot of times, and we ran 40,000 driver day uh, routes of transportation to and from, and we really coached our drivers to make sure that they were friendly to the people because um, that became their new family, especially mm. Uh, mm. working 512s or even more at facilities where a lot of these environments were really tough, seeing a yeah. lot of deaths, yeah, yeah, on, yeah. you know, deaths with no family members. Yeah, it was rough, yeah. Yeah. So... Backing up a little bit, as you started the even the staffing piece of it, um, you had to advertise. You had to build some technology infrastructure. I mean, where did all the where did the funding come from? Where did the startup sort of plan come from? 
Yeah, so it's, it's sort of funny, well, funny, not funny. Now it's great yeah. to look back at, but uh, in the beginning, and I started scoping this, I went out and uh, was trying to get a couple million dollars of funding and uh, went out to some investors and things. And, uh, you know, one of those first questions they asked me was what I had thought my prospective revenues were going to be. And I said, I don't know, $40 million. And mm. they're like, yeah, see you later, buddy. Um, you know, it turns out we did many multiples of that in our first year, but um, I ended up bootstrapping this thing off of credit cards. So, um, you know. Well, how much money did you borrow in credit cards? Yeah, so um, I was always one of those guys that was really concerned about managing credit and credit lines and things like that. And there's a lot of really interesting blogs where people are trying to maximize points and uh, sign up bonuses. And I didn't. I was never to that extreme, but I was very meticulous in managing credit. And it was always there really for a rainy day. And uh, what I ended up probably mid 300s against, and I, w- I was about $20,000 away from uh, being uh, maxed out all in. Wait, you owed else. over th- over 300000 on credit cards? Yep. I put about the mid 300s on there. and Paying it, 21 or whatever percent? That's right. That was my loan. Oh, my God. That's how I started it off. $300,000 on credit cards? Yep. Were you making like minimum payments? Oh, Yeah. Yep. Oh, jeez. Yep. Okay. It was you know, a short period of time, though, but it, it well, served okay. its purpose. Okay. How, how long was it? Um, probably three months. Oh, that's yeah. all? Before yeah. you could cash flow to pay yeah. them off? Yep. That's remarkable. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a, <laughs> a wild time. And, you know, for someone that manages their credit really tightly, and then you see the uh, credit scores go down into 500s because your utilization's up, uh, that's uh, wow. sometimes could be freak out time. Well, you were a father at the time of how many kids back then? Yeah. So back then when this started, um, I had a total of eight. Um, and then we had one <laughs> baby And $300,000 in, in credit card debt. Yeah. So uh, I was very confident in my capabilities of what I was doing. How so do you I live? Went all in. Oh my! You did. This is this is the craziest story. A father with eight kids gets three hundred thousand dollars of credit card debt, pays it off in three months, and here we are. And here we are. And yeah. then you had a ninth on the way at the time. That's right. Yeah, wow. and a very supportive wife. Clearly, clearly, you had a. How did? Okay, just. Back up a little bit. Yep. How did that conversation go with your wife yes. when you said, "Did you tell her what you were going to do?" Yeah, so it was really funny. Like we were getting ready, um, you know, in the bathroom, and I went upstairs, and uh, you know, she was getting ready in the bathroom, and I went upstairs, and I said, "Hey, you know, this whole COVID thing. I think I got to start a company to do something about this." And she said, "Okay." And we often reference back to that conversation because uh, you know that was a real pivotal point in our lives, and uh, in all the the crazy chaos that ensued from then that's developed into this great um, business and enterprise. Yeah, but didn't didn't the conversation go longer? Like, Hey dear, we got eight kids. I got, we got one coming. I want to start a company to solve this problem. We're going to have to go $300,000 into debt. And I don't know what, what's going to happen. You nope. didn't go into no details like that? No, because, uh, you know, it's really a, a concept on the front side of, hey, you know, uh, we need to do some things here. And um, as it evolved and, uh, you know, what our first contract was the Colorado Vax contract. And, uh, you know, I was out buying tables and tents and chairs and uh, all those kinds of different With things. With credit cards. Yeah, credit yeah. cards. And we went to every Lowe's and Home Depot in Denver and bought everything out. And people thought we were going to have one heck of a party. And I said, oh, I don't know if you'd call it a party, but, uh, yeah, that's how, that's how we put it together. Wow. 
All right. This is listeners, this is the nuttiest story of success that I've heard yet on Proco 360, which is what you're listening to, named Best Colorado Business Podcast 2021. I'm your host, Dave Tabor. This is the show featuring entrepreneurs who could be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. My guest today is Dan Dietrich, CEO of Jogan Health, the only person I've ever spoken to. I had eight kids, one on the way, and had three hundred thousand dollars in debt on his credit card. Thanks to my sponsors, Kinsley Meetings, Steve Kinsley, and the company uh, is Proco 360's longest-running sponsor, uh, and and they're in the business of uh, providing great meetings to companies that have lots of moving parts, so please give them a call. Also, via technologies, thanks for hosting Proco 360 and all the great help your team gives me around managing the website. Finally, Colorado Biz Magazine, our partnership is one of building our audiences together. Hey, please go to Proco360.com and check out all these great sponsors. All right, I'm... uh I messed up my even my sponsor thanks because I'm astounded by your story, Dan. <laughs> three hundred thousand credit. All right, so, um, so after after three months, you you essentially were cash flowing already. Were you were you placing lots of staff and and or was this more around uh, COVID testing? Yeah, so um, we started off uh, using a subcontracted third party, and then we evolved into staffing the people um, directly ourselves. And uh, really, the three months was. Waiting for invoicing and payment through mm. the uh, through the state agency. So that's so that's very interesting that a state agency did. Evidently, they didn't check your credit. But I mean, if, seriously, how do you get how do you get a a big enough contract from a state agency when you're a complete startup? Yeah. So um, you know, I think that there was a lot of uh, startup businesses that really aided and provided a role in the COVID response. Mm-hmm. And it probably couldn't happen without that. So you had a yeah. lot of people that had entrepreneurial spirit that jumped into the game. And, uh, you know, it's just sort of the nature of the beast of how it was. And people with references and depth of experience that had pandemic response um, were probably nearly zero. Huh. So really, did you, how did you pitch yourself as a logistic, logistics expert that wanted to help? Yeah, so I worked together with our third-party uh, vendor and um, worked on um, proposal. Yeah. So um, it, it's an interesting thing. I use Zoom Info to sort of use their lookup on different people within public health agencies. And I started to dial in, dial in for dollars. And um, I got a hold of some people with the state of Colorado that advised me that they had an RFP coming out and uh, the next week. So I worked with a third-party partner to um, – put together the response for that. And, uh, hmm. you know, they had done a lot of work in the space. So they were ideal. Yeah. And a lot of people brought in different subcontractors and things like yeah. that to assemble teams yeah. uh, to do this. Everyone was in a hurry. And I guess that's where, you know, vetting and everything. I would think that if you look across the country, for every Jogan Health, there are probably more than one failures, you know, where they came in, made promises, and couldn't deliver. Yeah. in you know, we replaced contractors out there across the system, across the country that, um, you know, just couldn't get there. And uh, maybe that just didn't have the attentiveness or the care. So I'm a really hands-on operator. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, all the way to the street level, it's important to me that every single person in our system, uh, you know, whether working for us or a patient is is taken care of. And that stuff weighs really heavy on me. Yeah. Well, uh, clearly. And, and, so for scale at this point, you and I talked right before we started. How many how many people do you have that are placed that are essentially Jogan employees now out in the field? Yeah, so right now we're sitting around eight hundred. But at the peak of the pandemic, we had thirty one hundred people working for us. Wow, 
Wow. So what happened to all of them? Yeah, so um, we had a, a couple of third-party staffing partners, and then um, the rest of that we did ourselves. So it was about a 50-50 blend. And, um, you know, they demobbed out as the projects, uh, you know, related to surge, uh, that wound down. Yeah. So what, you know, what, do, how, how close is Jogan Health today to what it was in the peak of the pandemic? I mean, do you have a, a settled down, happy, sort of fluid business now, or what does it look like? Well, you know, one of the big things people would always ask me, they're like, Hey Dan, this, uh, COVID thing where you were working, uh, 5am to 1am, seven days a week and, and that, um, pretty wild ride, but what are you going to do when the pandemic's <laughs> over, right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and it's arguable <laughs> whether COVID stays, goes, or or anything else. But what it really did is uh, cr- we were working in supporting these facilities in their most critical time. They obviously would have had other staffing partners prior, and they couldn't fulfill. So the fact that we could fulfill and we built the relationships with them uh, gave us an opportunity to pivot and really say, hey, um, you know, we're going to go and become a, a regular staffing agency yeah. and uh, field the sales team across the country and bring those core values forward and, uh, you know, do our part and then some to improve healthcare staffing. Uh, depending on what you read for different articles on the industry, they say 60% of the people want to quit in the next 12 mm-hmm. months. Well, mm-hmm. that's sort of scary because at the end, you know, all, all of us want to be in perfect health, but it's us, it's our loved ones or someone we know in our community that's going to be dependent on yeah. this stuff. And we're all in trouble if people aren't doing things that are positive to help that. Yeah, so it sounds like you've gone from a wild ride startup during COVID to a more of an operationally mature or steady kind of a steady state business. And, and that makes perfect sense. So I want to shift gears and I had wanted to talk about your emergency team support, deployable teams. Tell us about that really quickly, because I want to move on to some other things, but I'm curious about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, when you think about a hurricane or in the case of the migrants coming through um, that were bussed off to some of the different cities, mm-hmm. uh, we actually um, work with a with a prime contractor up on the Illinois project. So we've had as many as 450 people supporting 3,500 migrants in uh, maybe 30 shelter sites. Got it. And so these are deployable teams that you have. Yeah, and, uh, rapid cool. response and, you know. Like what's rapid mean? How quick? Uh, 24 hours, 48 hours, we can mobilize literally wow. hundreds of people. And hmm. uh, it's led by a bunch of people that uh, used to be former uh, FEMA or DHS people. Really? So, incredible that's, group. That's super cool. All right. I do want to shift gears away from Jogan Health. Uh, it may come back, of course, but you've described yourself as an innovator and entrepreneur at heart. So I really want to talk about, uh, in addition to Jogan Health, some other things you're doing, uh, you've got Jogan Traffic now. What does that do? Yeah, so Jogan Traffic uh, picks back up on the development of things for the traffic signals. But what we've done is uh, curated products and technology solutions from around the world, best of breed, and created exposure uh, to the U.S. market using a network of business development people and, and technical mm. people. So how do you bring innovation forward from around the world? Uh, you see a lot of different startup technologies from different countries, mm-hmm. also domestically in the U.S. that maybe just don't have that exposure or the sales force or the capital to fund a 2 $3 million endeavor. Um, we have that team of industry, well-renowned innovators that were able to plug technology and, cool. and products into. And are you involved with that too? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I, that was a that was a trick question. Yes, because it follows to my next one, which is you know I've always you talk about people always talk about serial entrepreneurs, right? I get that. 
you're more of a concurrent entrepreneur, doing more than one thing at once. You take a deep breath. I appreciate this. But like, is that... It, it, that seems implausible at best that you can, unless you're Elon Musk and he's sort of imploding. So how do you do that? How can you run concurrent startups? Yeah. So for me, it's about the people. So if we put the system together and at Juggin, we have what we call our machine. And this really emanated from a dream that I had that I had a, because like I- a real dream? Like a, a sleeping dream? dream? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and I've been working on a lot of different projects with different people where they would say, hey, Dan, you know, can you help us? And most of the time I would become involved in the conversation. They were on, on the slippery slope and, you know, getting booted out of their office and things and had no money. To, to help themselves. But I, I had this dream that I had a floor of an office building that had a marketing person, a biz dev person, a finance person, and, you know, the whole plethora that you would need. And I sort of had this core group of people that uh, were interns that would support them on a day-to-day basis. And I'd plug in with them weekly and we would help them to incubate and grow their businesses. Well, at, at Jogan and, you know, from our success that we've had, we're able to actually have that, but really on a, a much larger scale. So we have, you know, top tier marketing, top tier yeah. finance, and we're able to bring these different um, concepts and companies in, um, so, hire the right people and plug them into the machine to drive that success. So you're living your dream. I'm living the dream. Absolutely, <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> but the actual dream. Yes. That's funny. I'm glad it didn't turn into a nightmare. That's right. Me yeah. too. Yeah. I'm sure your wife is too. I got to talk with her one of these days. I want to find out what you <laughs> really said and what she really thought. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, now your your bio is interesting. Talk about being a Korean adoptee. What's that meant to you? Yeah, so uh, you know it goes pretty deep because it's the core of the class of who I am. Um, I serve on the board of Holt International. I'm the, the vice chair there, and it's it's about uh, supporting children around the world. And I was adopted from South Korea at five and a half months old. And uh, grew up in the Seattle area, and uh, you know Dietrich's a German last name, so I'm sort of the Korean German guy. <laughs> but uh, you know, the uh, we my wife's adopted Korean, and we have a couple of children that are adopted Korean mm-hmm. as well. So it's it's a big piece of things. But uh, you know, part of the thing that makes this story really great is being able to take that adoption, create opportunity out of that because it was an opportunity for me. Uh, and if you look into the South, the South Korea system, it's it's a challenge if you're an orphan. And uh, to be able to go and make something that impacts people's lives for the positive and then to expand on that with the things that we're doing um, with the different companies, yeah. is it is a dream come true. But it's saying, hey, um, if I can do this, anyone can do this. Well, has, do you think being an adoptee has shaped your career path? So I think uh, there's definitely been – um, some struggles and challenges in life. You know, everyone has different things like that, but um, it's de- it's an identity. Let's put it that way. Um, and, and, you know, what do you make out of that? And uh, how do you position yourself to uh, render good results out of the situations that mm. you're encountered in? And some people don't put out the effort and sometimes you think back to your past and you sort of slide backwards. But you know, I like to look forward and I'm always a glass half full type of person. Cool. So yeah. that, that's how, that's how I go at, uh, approaching different things. Nice. Well, I've got a couple more, a couple more things to ask, but before I do, I want to remind, catch that please. Before I do, I want to remind listeners, this is Proco 360. I'm your host, Dave Tabor. This is the show featuring entrepreneurs who could be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. 
This episode is with Dan Dietrich, CEO of Jogan Health. Go to Proco360.com to subscribe to the newsletter, read my blog, link to sponsors, and catch the books I'm listening to on Audible. So, all right. Last thing, I am I was super intrigued by your bio. That you've shared that you have nine children and that you've enjoyed teaching them about entrepreneurship and that you're giving them the tools to start their own businesses. So how have you done that? How old are they, by the way, and how have you given them tools? Yeah, so they're um, everything from age two to age 27. And uh, the tools are really the exposure. So, uh, you know, it could be something simple like the the boys uh, that are in their mid-teens are working on, uh, they operate our vending stuff at, at the office and things. Mm. And, uh, you know, it, it's really about exposure to the ecosystem we have and basically what's now become our incubator company and uh, being able to get them into some exercises of flushing out different ideas because there's always uh, and each kid's different and not yeah. everyone wants to be an entrepreneur by any means and and they're young so uh, they they don't necessarily know but if they have an idea it's like okay go online and search see is there something that's hmm. similar um, is there intellectual property around it uh, really some of those cool. kinds of things and then you know identify maybe a business case of how you think that could happen have and, any of your Children started businesses? Not yet. They're they're on, always on the cusp of it. You know, uh, we got a three D printer for one of them for their birthday, and that thing runs twenty four seven. So wow, maybe they'll be selling online. <laughs> they, they, they definitely looked at that. That's cool. So, what have you seen them come up with that you think that might actually be a business? Yeah, uh, you know, it is that three D printed products and doing prototyping and things like that mm-hmm. and selling it, and then uh, you know they're building uh, boats and planes and things out of uh, RC car parts or uh, looking to build like smart shoe technology and things um, that. Uh, have they gotten anything to work? They, um, have you? Have they said, "Dad, try this prototype in your shoe." Yeah, so I can tell you, uh, you know, we've had a boat that motored around and didn't take on water. Very first mission out, so nice. that was pretty cool. But uh, yeah, shoe thing is an early prototype. <laughs> That's cool. So two more things. Um, wh- my friends and I have talked about how difficult it is for people with means to raise resilient children, and most entrepreneurs fail. So as you think about, you know, they fail at some point, uh, as you think about, you know, teaching your kids to be resilient in order to be entrepreneurs, I mean, does that, does any of that cross your mind or does does this resonate with you? Yeah. So, you know, I look at that and absolutely modeled that. And at the, back in the day, I used to always wonder what it'd be like to grow up in a family with a lot of means in that and. Um, so that's an interesting optic or perspective to have on it. But you, I just look back to how I was raised and I had to go work and earn everything. And it was from the paper route to, uh, you know, cooking in a restaurant uh, yeah. in, in working my way through. And I've built a few different businesses over the years and had some, you know, business partners that, uh, you know, I learned a lot from that um, also um, were not very honest. Um, mm. So, you know, school of hard knocks yeah. and that. But, uh, you know, nothing's going to be handed to them. And even in the business itself, they know that the only way they're going to have an opportunity for a career at the company is uh, by being the most qualified candidate. Mm, 
So you're uh, not going to lend them your credit cards to go start a company? No, absolutely <laughs> not. And uh, I, I can tell you, if they come to me with a viable idea, we'll plug them into the system, just like any other incubated company, and uh, they could have an opportunity there. But uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of structure around that and a lot of diligence on their side at whatever level they're capable of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you definitely look inward. But uh, you know. We, there's no handouts in, in, in the family for the kids. They got to earn and work their way through. And I think that's how you create that resiliency and uh, keep them grounded. That's cool. Well, you, you mentioned incubator. So let's wrap up on this topic around what you're involved with, with Denver Angels. You're you're creating some systems to allow entrepreneurs to be successful if they if they can be. Talk about that. Yeah. So this is something really near and dear to my heart. And uh, fortunately, you know, through my involvement with Denver Angels in in that, uh, we put together and uh, we just led a $25 million seed fund that was just announced um, together with Denver Angels. And the whole idea on that is being able to capture that innovation. As I've looked and sort of grown this company, but worked to grow other companies, always felt that there was a gap or a void in the market for people coming off of the friends and family dollars to getting to where they can get to the next phase. And I understand why the gap's there and there's a lot of risk and things, but you'll see uh, different groups and they'll throw $50,000, $100,000 at people. But these people, a lot of times, maybe they're just a technology innovator or maker of a product, but they don't know all the other parts and pieces of business mm-hmm. or marketing or supply chain and fulfillment. Yeah. And, you know, you see the lost and stymied innovation. And mm. I think that that innovation is so important for humanity. So fortunately, uh, you know, we've been able to be successful to be in the position of putting together the ability to incubate these companies. So uh, seed fund, but then wrapping our arms around them to ensure that they have adequate resources to be able yeah. to have that success. You know, it sounds like, I mean, they're... Is there is there something unique about the approach you're using in your fund uh, or the kinds of companies you want to speak with? Because I you hear about these these angel funds or innovation innovation tanks or you know they're all over the country. So is there some something you've got your eye on that's different maybe for you and for your fund than would be elsewhere? Yeah, so I think um, it's it's my approach to things. Um, I really look at the hyper growth approach. And being able to have the resources to support applying hypergrowth to these new concepts is, is, is a big deal. Uh, it's a big differentiator. And I see these different groups that they throw that money at them and then they're like, good luck, or mm. go uh, into these couple YouTube videos or something like that. And they come out and maybe it's just not their thing to be the marketing person. Yeah. And they'll, they'll get that round of capital and then they go and they hire someone because they said, Hey, I need an ops person. I yeah, need yeah, a marketing yeah. person. Mm-hmm. But what if they, um, get a bad hire yeah. and then now they're out of money. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, you know, these are all points where things fail. And by coming into the fold of, you know, what we do at Jogan as an incubator, mm-hmm. uh, we're able to have those, uh, top tier teams, the people really support them and you remove those margins of error. Yeah. Have you got your eye on a few companies now? Yeah, we, we have a, uh, quite a few, actually, uh, more than a handful that we have uh, wrapped into the incubation. We also have our own organically produced companies. But, cool. uh, you know, I'm, again, really aggressive in growth. You know, we've gone from, uh, you know, startup on the credit cards. We'll exceed a billion in top line revenue in three years, uh, something that people just haven't ever done with no debt. And, uh, you know, we look at the first benchmark of how can we make an impact? How can we make an impact? 
for innovation in the state of Colorado. And it's really getting 100 companies. That's sort of the first benchmark of how do we incubate and uh, support the innovation of 100 companies. And if you think about the impact that can have across the country, but the core of it is coming right out of this state. That's cool. I think that's a good note to end on. Awesome. Thanks, Dan. I'm your host, Dave Tabor. Today on Proco 360, you've been listening to my conversation with Dan Dietrich, CEO of Jogan Health. Dan, you know, you've once you get once you've incubated as many companies as you have children, you're already on your way, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so, listeners, glad you're here on Proco 360, where we say live, work, love Colorado, because you and I and my guests can be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. You make the show successful by subscribing to the Proco 360 podcast. And if you haven't yet, it's a huge help if you submit a review in your app. Thanks again to show sponsors via Technologies, Kingsley Meetings, and Colorado Biz Magazine. That's the show. Live, work, love Colorado.